Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. And today's question, for those of you who will be familiar with this phrase, comes from a hymn or a a praise song, but it's very pertinent to our day. And the question we're asking is, how can we keep from singing? Obviously, something to do with the restrictions on some state in the state that Steve and I live, we have a governor that has not only forbidden gatherings of more than a certain number of people, but has forbidden singing. So Steve, how can we keep from singing? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question because in our day, people might think it's superfluous or unnecessary to focus on singing. In fact, some churches might even view singing the singing of hymns as secondary or a decoration to the worship service. So much that the idea of a church without singing might not even compromise what's really important, a gospel presentation or the sermon. But a quick study through the concordance, you know, that book that's in the back of many Bibles or in your bookshelf that says the collection of Bible verses that contain a common word. If you were to look up singing or song, in that concordance, you'll find that it's one of the largest entries. And whether you're looking in the beginning of the Bible, the books of Moses, especially in the the middle of the Bible with Psalms and Proverbs, and all throughout the New Testament, you'll see that singing is mentioned more than teaching. Singing is mentioned more than reproof. Singing is mentioned as the primary way that not only people worship the Lord, but singing is the primary way in which we teach the Bible teach the scriptures to our families and our children and even the unbeliever. And so while we may, because of our our postmodern way of thinking of music as background noise or music as decoration or even music as art, the Bible sees music as the primary means by which we communicate information. So this sort of begs the question, if at a time when the government's state governments, federal governments are trying to keep everybody safe and deciding things that are essential and things that are not essential, it would almost not be a stretch to say that they understand the value of singing and that's one of the reasons why they're forbidding it. And we all understand the importance of singing as well. If we were to take a step back, even before this current crisis, we could recognize how essential music and singing is to our lives. Just imagine for a moment your favorite movie, but now you're not allowed to have any music in it at all. Even music, even songs that don't sing, the idea of removing music from that movie makes the entire movie feel hollow or artificial. You can see it in horror movies where the suspense, the drama, the buildup of the movie comes from uh, this idea of music behind it. Intensity, adventure, all of those things are created in media through music. And so when we remove singing from our normal life, we begin to hollow it out. And what we see is that's a reflection of how God created this world. 
Because what we often neglect to see is the symphonic reality that we live in. The scripture in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 talks about how God speaks creation into being. And while we might imagine God speaking plainly, we know that there is a symphonic, right, a singing of creation. Everything that was created came in these layers of meaning and identity. So God sings the creation into being, and then he creates creatures, primarily with the angels, who sing in reaction to this creation, and then creates his vice regents, the dominion man, who sings, again, echoing God's words of creation. And so singing, in a theological sense, represents our dominion or cultural mandate to recreate the world as God initially set it by singing. So I think it's important to, just because people might say, wait a minute, music and singing are not the same thing. Singing implies the human voice. And I once heard it said by a choir director that the human voice was the only instrument God created and every other instrument since then is man applying sound and, and using the, the gifts God gave him. But the human voice is truly the original God-inspired instrument. That is true. But I would go a step further saying that every instrument is made after God's creation in man. So, it's not so much that the voice itself is the instrument. It's that man as a creature is the instrument. So if you were to look at a orchestra and break down the very instruments that they have, percussion, brass, woodwinds, all of those are in themselves reflections of how God created the human body, right? The windpipe, you clap your hands, all of this percussive or woodwind or even the brassy sounds we get out of our metal instruments are reflections of God's creation in mankind. Now, it's elevated in the voice because the voice is man mimicking or recreating or acting as God intended in the dominion mandate. What's interesting about the story or the idea of man as an instrument is that throughout church history, this has been taken to one severity or another. Some people are familiar with Reformed or Presbyterian churches that don't use instruments and only sing songs strictly from the Bible. Some people call this the regulative principle, and various Reformation churches have done this over the years. But what's interesting is that particular idea first existed in the first millennium of the church under Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, pope Gregory the Great is who John Calvin called the last great pope. Gregory wanted to emphasize the Word of God. And so when you think of church music, especially pre-Reformation church music, a lot of people recognize Gregorian chant, you know, the, the monkish-sounding sacred music of man's voice singing. Pope Gregory had the idea that we we're going to remove all of man-made instruments so that we could elevate the Word of God. And he was going to add these certain tones that emphasized that when anybody came into a church, the only thing that they could hear was the singing of God's word. And so Pope Gregory believed that singing elevated God's word to the point where nothing could be more appropriate than man's voice singing God's word to worship God. 
And I love the way Gregorian chant sounds. Uh, the schooling I had growing up, we had to learn it. And it's a very, very beautiful and sacred kind of sound. I think it would fall under the category of what today would be classified as sacred music. Right. What's also interesting is that it's meant to be easy to learn. And so a lot of what we have trouble with in singing church music is largely based on unfamiliarity. But these forms, while they can be very complicated and require skills at certain levels, the intention of them is that they allow the memorization of scripture to be easier. They allow the public singing and reading of scripture to be easier. And they're meant so that children could sing the hymns or the psalms or the worship service of the early church. So one of the things that has always impressed me is that the Bible speaks of the assembly, the congregation, the ecclesia, and specifically calls believers to come together and with a joint voice, praise God. So you'll hear, come, let us go to the house of the Lord. And going back to this prohibition against group singing under the guise that people will infect each other, what do you say to people who say, well, things like don't sing or things like wearing a mask isn't that loving your neighbor? Isn't that obeying God because he tells us to obey the authorities over us? Well, I could see how people might feel that way. And if there wasn't a command in the scripture to sing, maybe you could make that case. But throughout the New Testament, the apostle commands us, the apostles on several times command us to sing unto the Lord. And ultimately, I think as good Christians, our example is, of course, Jesus. And Jesus's life is bookended on both ends, whether it's at the Annunciation, where Christ is proclaimed to come by the angels who sing it unto Mary, or through uh, the birth. At the Christmas nativity, the angels are, are singing, here is the child, right? To all the way to the end of Christ's life. And the people come singing into Jerusalem, Hosanna. So the entire life of Christ is singing. The apostles command us to sing, whether they're in jail or in public worship. Singing is the response, the obedient response of the Christian. So in times of difficulty, in times of issue, singing is the most appropriate and most obedient response. So there would be those who say, that would be great if modern church singing, and by modern, I don't mean necessarily worldwide, I mean in your average evangelical huge church that has thousands of members, that the singing is often not reflective of people praising God so much as it is people talking about their relationship with God. And as you kind of stated earlier, sometimes the tunes are very hard to sing, so it becomes more of a performance with an audience watching rather than participants joining together to praise God. Right. And those who study church history can recognize that what we're going through in the 21st century with worship music has a cyclical pattern in the church. So just as Gregory had instituted the ban of instruments there in the early years of the church, so too did the idea of performative worship exist in the medieval church. 
So there was, during the time just before the Reformation, the idea that people shouldn't sing in church. In fact, the medieval churches would hire traveling bands to perform at services. So typically, the European medieval church, you would have communion twice a year if you're a regular person, and you would come to Sunday services or Holy Day services, and you would watch the priest mumble out the Latin liturgy. So he'd go through the spoken liturgy. Certain times he would even mumble out the songs, you know, the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. And the highlight of the medieval worship service was when he would then lift up the the Eucharist, the elements, the host, the bread, and the people would just for that moment hear a bell and gaze up and then go about doing whatever they were doing. There was no participation in this medieval period. What the Reformation did to worship is it said that there was a responsibility of the people in the worship service, what you described as the ecclesia. The, the people were assembled for a purpose. It wasn't just the priest who was supposed to do some strange ritual. And so while the medieval church would hire these bands, these uh, performative choruses to come on occasion to sing, most people did not go to church to sing. So the Reformation, first thing they did, Calvin hires one of his disciples to put the Psalms to music so that they could be sung in the worship service. And then the primary impetus of the Reformation is we're going to teach the people the scriptures by requiring them to sing it in the worship service. Now that was revolutionary in the sense that it was contrary to the medieval standard, but it was really just a return to the idea that Gregory had introduced a millennium before. And so the Reformation ideal was to give the music back to the people. And what we saw following the Reformation is this great development of church music. You got Bach, Haydn, Handel, this great idea that the church was going to rebirth church music. And that would be the glorious tradition of the Reformation, except today as Calvinism wanes in influence and people forget what the Reformation really did to worship, they have allowed performative, what was the Catholic medieval practice, to take over once again inside the church. So now we're back in the 14th century watching a band perform as we in the pews mumble along and don't know how to sing. Right. I know in the tradition I was raised in, the choir was always either in a loft in the back or just in the back of the church, that what they were there to do was to perform the Levitical function that the uh, Word of God says that the Levites did because some were singers. And so it's this voice, a one voice going forward. And one of the things that's really interesting about four-part harmony, and then I guess if you get really fancy, six- and eight-part harmony These are sounds that cannot be produced by one person. These are sounds that are produced by a number of people. And that's part of what is unique in terms of congregational singing and worship. Yeah. And that's a theological reality too. We are as the ecclesia, as the church, as the assembly called the bride of Christ. But we become that in the fullest sense, when we're symphonic, when we bring our voices together, that's male and female, old and young, different languages, different tongues. The reality 
eschatologically of the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom is seen in the worship service. On Monday through Saturday, we go about putting the bricks to build the castle of the kingdom. And then on Sunday, we get a rest and we get to experience a little bit of us going up to the heavenlies and saying, this is what the seraphim and the cherubim are doing once the kingdom is fully inaugurated, once the kingdom is fully consummated. What will we do? We'll sing holy, 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 <laughs> just like the angels do uh, in glorious praise. And then we'll get back to building the kingdom even more glorious. Exactly. And when you think about what happens at a worship service where the worship of our lives all during the week comes together and we worship in unity, this is where the church triumphant and the church militant come together. So we really are singing with that great cloud of witnesses. That's right. And it's a future reality that God gives us today. So it's not a coincidence that the greatest king of the Old Testament, this great conqueror king, David, was an accomplished vocalist and dancer, right? So the idea of the Old Testament king is accompanied by his Levites. He's marching out into battle. And what words is he singing? He's singing the songs of praise, those psalms. And you see that as the reality that Jesus is bringing us. We, his army go forward, you know, just like the hymn says, onward Christian soldiers, and we sing these hymns invoking God to come to our strength, uh, come be our strength, come to our side, be our deliverer. And that's really the pattern you see over and over in scripture. When the people come out of Egypt in the Exodus story, they go out the other side of the river and they sing and they dance, praise be to God. Throughout the book of Judges, it's, you see the song of Deborah, it's the song of victory. There is a connection between a people who worship God rightly through song and those who receive the blessing of obedience in the kingdom. And I think an interesting cultural development has to do with many of the American patriotic songs. I'm thinking of the Star Spangled Banner or My Country Tis of Thee. And most people never learn beyond the first verse. But as you go down, you recognize that these were hymns, in fact, and there's, in many cases, very strong Christian content that isn't even part of what we hear today. And yet, it's those patriotic songs which end up being a unifier for our country that are under attack now. So is it not interesting what first happens in the church then makes its way into the greater culture? That's right. You know, culture is downstream from wherever the church is. But that's why St. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Colossae, says that we need to teach and admonish each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. St. Paul doesn't say, you need to have a seven-hour-long sermon. He says, teach and admonish with songs and spiritual hymns. Uh, there is a certain power that we've abdicated because we refuse to come together and worship the Lord and ask for his blessing over our assembly. And just the very nature of being in a group of people who sing together. At Christmas time, you have people who aren't even particularly faithful in a Christian walk who want to come together for the Sing It Yourself Messiah. But by and large, it's a praising of God and taking portions of scripture 
And there is an uplifting element to that that really doesn't happen with any other kind of venue. Even when you're singing song in unison, a country song or or a rock song, it's usually about how somebody wrongs somebody else or how somebody left somebody else or, you know, hoping for the perfect person. But what makes the liturgical or Christian music so important is it's reaffirming our posture before God. That's right. And it's also what, what you see in, in Handel's manuscripts. If you go back and you, and you read why he wrote what he wrote, he had these little initials. They're at the bottom of every manuscript that he wrote. So you look, look at the original notation for Messiah, which was initially an Easter play, actually. But the bottom, he kept these three little letters, S-D-G. Those who are reformed know that SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria, one of those battle calls of the Reformation. Glory to God alone. And so the men who created these kind of cultural monuments in these uh, great musical productions that are sung by believers and unbelievers of the power of the gospel ultimately are the touchstones of where God's glorious name is most praised. And so I think. Uh, what we need is a recovery uh, of singing and to recognize that it's the power uh, of recreating this world. So these great musicians didn't have record contracts that they were thinking about or becoming famous. They were using their gifts to glorify God. Yes. Well, and that's really another place where there's probably a need for folks to go back and read about the intention of classical music. I think most people don't understand the connection between what we understand to be classical or hymns and its Christian identity. And they don't recognize how the great composers really viewed music completely different than secular musicians or even Christian musicians today. It wasn't really seen as a career. And in fact, the greatest musicians only worked for the purpose of the patronage of a king or the patronage of a church. The idea that you might have a, a record label or an independent concert series is completely modern and within the last century an idea. Yes. And when you think about it, most modern music, it's hard to understand the lyrics. And sometimes when you, you call Christians on, why are you listening to that music? They will tell you, well, I don't really listen for the words. I listen for the beat or whatever excuse they give. But the words are probably the most important part of a song or a piece of music. And when those lyrics are degrading, image bearers of God or, or talking about things that God's law forbids, it, it shows you how we have lost a compass in terms of how do we use the voice, the instrument that we are, that God created us to be? That's right. Well, um, I think it's worth recommending a couple of, of books. If somebody was really interested in a Christian view of singing or a Christian view of music, one that was recommended by Francis Schaeffer is called A Gift of Music, uh, and that's by Jane Stewart Smith and Betty Carlson. And that book actually gives a blow-by-blow -blow history from uh, the early church through probably the end of the 19th century of the development of Christian singing and Christian music and how the great composers fit into the development of the Reformation and the church. 
and how anytime you see a great theological progress or a theological reformation, it's always accompanied by reformation in the church or with music. And so this, this edict, this mandate that says, you must not sing, I think the refrain from the book of Acts is, we must obey God rather than man. Amen. So just because I know that there are people who listen, who homeschool, and there are those who are very much involved in Christian education, how would you say music should fit into the curriculum for any part of Christian education? Well, I think learning songs early on, you know, from age three all the way through middle school should be a daily part of your curriculum. My wife and I just spent the last week up in a summer camp that does a choir training for their school. And in their particular curriculum, they begin every morning at 7.30 a.m. singing uh, morning prayers. And so they learn not only hymns that are from traditional hymnody, but they also learn to sing the Lord's Prayer. They learn to sing the Apostles' Creed. And they learn these in different chant tones or even according to different music. But in doing that, those melodies and those words become ingrained into your identity so much that not only is it more enjoyable than the monotone repetition of the Creed again or the Lord's Prayer again, but you find yourself as you're hiking in the woods suddenly singing the tune to the Lord's Prayer because it's just stuck. It's an earworm inside of your brain. And I think that that's essential to get the Word of God into people. There was a time when every minister in the church universal had to memorize 150 psalms in order for them to become a true minister. This was the practice all the way up until about the first millennium. To become a a true pastor, you had to prove that you had memorized all these psalms. And so they would memorize them according to song tunes to melodies. And that would allow them to teach those to children, to teach them to the congregation. And there was a great literacy of the scripture at a time when people didn't have physical prayer books, physical hymnals, physical Bibles. And yet today, when we have access to every imaginable form of music, pre-recorded, digitally, on your phone, streaming in your car, everywhere you go, you can bring the music. And yet there's a great illiteracy of Christian music and even Christian scripture. Exactly. I remember, I think it was Doug Wilson, but I'm not sure, talked about that Christians should be literate in terms of somebody could come and say, hey, I just put together this new psalm or this new hymn, or I've put this psalm to music and hand it out to everybody that they could all sing it much the same way if you handed people things, they could all read it. And so I think this is something that's important to put back in to be able to teach how to read music. But it reminds me that in Scripture, David says in Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. And music is a great way to do it. And I'm sure this is true for other people as well. But it's so easy for me to get a song stuck in my head that I have to be careful because there's some jingles on commercials that are just so annoying. And I'll find myself, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and this jingle is going through my head that if we fill ourselves with good psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs. Those are the things that will play in our heads. And I think the, the modern music really plays into one of the really difficult parts of our culture, which is the consumeristic idea. The idea that music is something for us to consume rather than the dominion idea, which is that music is something for us to create, for us to produce. Instead of us seeing ourselves as passive in music, you know, you put the earbuds on and you listen to what other people have done. The Lord is calling you to give your song. It's not good enough just to play it, although there are times when it's enjoyable to play it. But the Lord's calling you to also sing it, to make it yours, to really be that dominion man or woman who says, the scripture is my scripture, and the way that I make it mine is I use this instrument, my voice, my body, my hands, and I sing to the Lord. And that's been done in a variety of styles and genres and languages over the centuries. But now you have the opportunity to make it wholly yours. Something you said reminded me of something that happened years ago. My youngest child was blessed by God with a very good voice, and we invested in voice lessons, and she was part of choirs. But I always wanted her to use the gift rather than just have the gift. So we would go to retirement homes, nursing homes, fire stations, anybody who would say yes, that we would come and we'd bring our little machine that would play the tracks. And invariably, people would say things like, oh, she's so talented. She should be on Broadway. Or I bet you she could get a recording contract. She's too good for this. And I would say to them, no, she's not. This is a gift she's given and she's giving it back and we're giving it back to you. So, so much of people's knee-jerk reactions, these were all very, very grateful people, but they didn't somehow figure they were good enough to receive this gift. And I think that's sad. It is. And it also, again, points to what is the purpose of these gifts that we're given. And anytime we take away from the idea that God gives gifts for the purpose of spreading his kingdom and then begin to substitute the reason for the gift to whether it's money or fame or whatever it is, um, then we get, begin to lose track of the intention. God created your voice primarily not for the worship of the creature or the creation, but rather for the worship of God. And we've gotten music so far away from that that suddenly the idea of sacred music becomes secondary to this general idea of music as entertainment. So I guess the bottom line, how can we keep from singing? We shouldn't. And we should sing unto the Lord a new song every day. And you mentioned the concordance. I just did a really quick search online. Verses in scripture, passages in scripture that say we should sing and the results came back, the top 100 places in scripture where it says we should sing. So if we had the top 100, my guess is there are thousands based on what you said earlier. Yes. And there's not just examples, but commands. We are commanded to sing. How can we keep from singing? We can't because to refuse to sing, to refuse to give praise back to God for the glorious creation he made, in your body or in the world you live in, is disobedience to God. And so, just as God created uh, the garden beautiful, just as the, the trees and the fruit bearing were pleasing to the eye, whether you are a trained musician who can follow the notes on the page or not, 
your voice singing praises to God is pleasing to God's ears. And it's expected that not only with your words, but with your entire body, you know, down from your diaphragm, gather in that breath and push out those praises to God because he's expecting you to sing, whether or not uh, Gavin Newsom or other future tyrant uh, says, don't sing. And there is, a, we should close with this one story that I love. There, there was a movie, I'd say maybe 15, 20 years ago, called Paradise Road. And what it was, was a Hollywood version of a book that was written by someone who had been interned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. And this camp basically housed women. And there were Dutch women, and there were English women, and there were American women. Had among them someone who had been an accomplished violinist, and another one who was a Presbyterian, I guess she had been a choir director. And so what they did, since many of them were in fact Christian, they started something called a vocal orchestra. Because they couldn't all sing the same language, the two women who were gifted in music basically took familiar tunes and they taught the women the actual notes. So these women became a vocal orchestra. And it was so astounding what happened that the Japanese captors actually let them put on concerts for them. The, the book, if it's still available, is called Song of Survival. And um, I actually had the, the benefit of meeting the author because once I saw the movie and read the book, I found out she lived not too far from where I lived. And so we went up and met her. And then the choir that my children were part of, they actually tackled the vocal orchestra. So it just shows that in the midst of a very hopeless situation or apparently hopeless, God had his people there and these women were encouraged and they, many of them survived. And they look back to that as part of that survival. So that's why the book was entitled Song of Survival. That's wonderful. Well, and it, it goes back to something that Mark, Mark Rushton often talks about, about how this idea of sharing the gospel is a legal or royal pronunciation, right? In the ancient world, to be an ambassador of the gospel meant you went and you said, the new king is coming, right? There's a, new, a change in power. We're going to share the good news that there's a new king. And you can imagine a procession of, of a king returning from war, and he's flanked on both sides with men holding horns, with a man singing beside them, singing the great victory march song. And that's really what the church is doing on earth. The church triumphant, the church militant are joining together, singing the song of the gospel. It's not good enough for us to just know it. We must exercise, sing and praise and proclaim uh, that what has been done in heaven, right? That Christ has ascended to the right hand is now being done on earth. And so every time you open your mouth and you begin to belt out a few bars, you are bringing that heavenly reality that Christ is king, seated at the right hand of God, making the world into his footstool, that the world is being restored back to its perfect order because of what Christ has accomplished. Every verse, every note, every song is a piece of that heavenly reality coming down into earth and proclaiming 
what the angels have said. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord is and here. And it proclaims the victory that we're assured. Maybe that is part and parcel why we have those who hate God wanting to silence the voice of the people. Well, to go back to our initial question, if we refuse to sing, we're basically suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and we don't want to do that. That's right. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us. As always, you're appreciated. And if you have comments or questions or topics that you would like us to cover, feel free to contact us through email, outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.